Great to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Psalm 19. Uh, if you don't know where the Psalms are, they're in the middle of the Bible. So you could probably just drop your Bible and it'll flop over and there's a good chance it's going to land in the Psalms. Okay, so if you can't find it. If you don't have a Bible, I also encourage you on our next steps table right out here in the lobby. There are free Bibles. Will you please take one? We'd love for you to have that. Um, but yeah, Psalm 19, we're going to be reading through the entire uh, scripture there. But before we do that, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray to him. Ask for his help by spend, sending his spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, and we thank you for your son Jesus, who we just sang about, our living hope. And Jesus, you said that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we need this word this morning. We need it more than we need food and water. We know that you sustain our spirits by it and that you give us life by it. So would you do that now? Would you teach us? And we ask this in your name. Amen. One of my favorite books when I was first becoming a Christian was a book by a man named J.I. Packer. Maybe some of you are familiar with that name. J.I. Packer recently passed away, but he was a theologian, a British theologian who spent a lot of his time uh, teaching up in Canada. But on the back of one of his most influential books, his most influential book was Knowing God. It had these words. What were we made for? Answer, to know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus offers? Knowing God. What is the best thing in life? Knowing God. What in man gives God most pleasure? That we know him. I love that because it just emphasizes the fact that what we believe is that God communicates himself to us. That we actually have a God who knows us and intimately wants us to have a relationship with him through knowing him. So the question immediately becomes, this is a question I asked when I was first becoming a Christian, was, well, can we really know God? Can we really know him? Is it possible to actually know him personally and intimately? And if so, how do we know him? How do we know him? Where do we go to get this information about God? Where do we go where God has revealed himself? And that's what I love about Psalm 19. In fact, that's what C.S. Lewis loved about Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis said that this is the greatest poem in the whole Psalter and the greatest lyric in the world. Because here we can go to know that God can be known, that God communicates himself. Anybody here baseball fans? Baseball fans? A couple of you? My favorite baseball player growing up, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to say this, it was Barry Bonds. Okay, nobody liked Barry Bonds, even though he was a fantastic player. Nobody really liked him because he never opened up. Right. Reporters would come to him and they would ask him questions. He never revealed himself. He never made himself known personally and intimately to even his greatest fans. David, who's the author of this psalm, says the complete opposite. That God himself has revealed himself, and he's revealed himself in two places. The first place we see in verses 1 through 6, that God has revealed himself in creation. So beginning in verse 1, David speaking, he says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I want you to notice what we see here. The first thing that we see is that David's making the claim that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. That is, that he's the creator of all things. In other words, creation is not whispering or hinting that God is there, but it's shouting it. It is making it known by proclamation that God exists and he is behind creation. There is behind the creation a creator, okay? And this is fundamentally different from how we often think about the world, right? Today, the assumption is that creation stands alone. You don't need God in the equation to speak about the universe, right? That's how most people think about the universe. And it even goes so far to say that if you want to be a sober, sensible, and rational person, then you can explain creation without God, usually through science or through a reason. Anybody kind of heard this way of thinking? But if you're superstitious or you psychologically need something outside of yourself, then you can believe in God. But us sober, rational, sophisticated people, we don't need God in the equation to explain how the world works. But I like what David says here that actually the most reasonable, sober, and sensible thing you can do when you look at creation is to conclude that there is a God behind this. And think, right, which sounds more reasonable? I want you to think with me here. Which sounds more reasonable? and more sober and sensible. Have you ever witnessed a cup of coffee just pop into existence? Anybody? No? Have you ever been looking at the mountains and just seen a bird pop into existence and fly through the air? Nobody's ever seen that, right? That, that's not something that we noticeably observe as a regular phenomenon when we look out into the universe, right? So let me ask you a question really quick. What is more reasonable? Isn't it more reasonable that the universe just popped into existence one day, that it spontaneously, without cause, just came to be? Or is it more reasonable that there was actually a personal creator who created the universe? See, we observe every day that effects have a cause. So why is it that we think the most reasonable explanation for the universe is that this great effect of the universe had no first cause. Why would that be? And when you think of science, right, science is in the business of making observations about the world and then making hypotheses about the world and then testing those hypotheses. And the idea is if something's scientific, it can be repeated over and over again, right? Every time I turn on the eye of my stove, it gets to 220 degrees Fahrenheit or so, and the water starts boiling every single time. Is that the right uh, heat for boiling of water, by the way? Maybe. Not a lot of scientifically-minded people, something around there. But the idea is it can be repeatable and observed. But has anybody actually observed something coming from nothing, repeatably and observably? No. So. 
the fact must be that the most reasonable thing is that creation points to a creator, a cause, God himself. And I like what David says. He says that the heavens declare the glory of God. We don't use that word very often anymore, glory. But the idea in Hebrew is the word kavod. It's, it's this idea of weightiness or gravity, right? It's the idea of something serious. And we kind of uh, make this distinction when we talk about things. So when we talk about politics, right, those are weighty matters. When we talk about philosophy or religion or spirituality, those are weighty, heavy things to talk about, not things to talk about casually. But when we talk about sports or we talk about weather, those are pop culture, those are lighter matters. Well, David says that God's weightiness, his gravity, his impact and his power can be seen when we look at the heavens. There's a universe that was discovered in February 2013. Its, in, its name is NGC 1365. It's a really catchy name. They thought that would catch on. Well, a team of astronomers, when they were looking at this universe, noticed at the center of it a massive black hole whose, whose distance across was 3 million kilometers. This one black hole was 3 million kilometers across. The speed at which it's rotating on its outer edge is close to the speed of light. And its power is so forceful that it's actually disrupting that entire galaxy, that planets are going into it, and its stars in that galaxy are actually going into it. So make yourself think really quick. Think of the power, the weightiness of that black hole, and now think of the God who created it. How much more glorious must that God be? And I love how David describes it. He, he continues to describe God's glory in creation in verse 2. He says this, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, when the sun comes up in the morning, God's screaming his glory. When the sun goes down at night, God's screaming his glory. In other words, God's revelation of himself in creation is constant. Always, 24-7. And then in verse 3, he continues, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all, notice that word, all the earth. And their words to the end of the earth. So God's revelation of himself is not only constant, it's inescapable. You cannot go somewhere where God is not revealing himself because it's inescapable. God's truth and revelation of himself goes to every nook and cranny of creation. It goes through all the earth, which means you can't not see God's glory. You cannot not see or hear God's glory. Now, I had this objection when I was becoming a follower of Jesus, and there might be some of you in here this morning, you have maybe this similar objection, and you would say, okay, I get that. I get that religion would say that, but hasn't science taught us new things about how the universe works? Hasn't science and scientific investigation of the universe suggested that there, there isn't a God now that we know how the universe works? And yes, science has told us a lot of great things and new things about how the universe works. But I want you to realize just because science can tell us how the universe works doesn't mean that it can tell us there is no God behind the universe. 
So put it this way. I could tell you a lot. I can teach you everything there is to know about Microsoft Office. Actually, I can't because I don't know anything about Microsoft Office, but somebody could. Okay, somebody could do that. And now imagine after hearing this person, you know everything there is to know, Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint. Would it be a reasonable conclusion to then say, therefore, Bill Gates doesn't exist? That's not a reasonable conclusion, right? I know a lot about how this thing's work, thing works, but I can conclude from that that the creator now doesn't exist? How is that? See, just because science can tell us a great deal about how the universe doesn't work doesn't mean it can't tell us that there's no God behind the universe. In fact, it should tell us, right, if you knew everything that there was to know about Microsoft Office, you'd conclude that Bill Gates is just wicked smart. Same thing with God. That this God must be highly intelligent, highly wise, unfathomably complex in his being. And I love how David expands on this at the second half of verse 4. He illustrates this. I love this imagery. He says, In them God has sent a tent for the sun. That's the heavens. He set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. And talking about the sun again, he says, Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So you see the image that David is working with here. He's saying, knowledge of God is as if you're a person standing in the middle of the desert. And there's no tree, there's no cave, no clouds in the air, and that sun is going out in the morning, and at noonday, there is no escape from its heat. You will not not get a sunburn. You can't escape it. And that's like knowledge of God in creation. Everyone knows God through creation because creation speaks loudly, it speaks constantly, and you cannot escape that conclusion. And then David's focus shifts, beginning in verse 7. Notice how it shifts. He then goes to say, the law of the Lord is perfect. That word law in the Bible can mean two things. It can mean strictly his law, like the Ten Commandments, or it can mean all of the Bible, all of the scriptures, okay? It's the word Torah, and how David uses it here, he's using it in the sense of all of the scriptures. So it's as if he's saying this. There are two ways you can know God. One, through creation, and he's revealed himself generally to all people. That's why we call it general revelation, right? It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, where you're from, when you lived, you can know God through the created order. But God has also revealed himself specially in special revelation through his scriptures, through his word, that specially God has given his people his word in the Bible that we can know him truly, fully, and rightly. In other words, we need something more than general revelation to know this God. And this God has spoken to us in his word, in this book. Now, has anybody ever wondered, why a book? Why not a movie, right? Movies are more interesting. Anybody seen Ben-Hur? right? Charlton Heston. You talk about the Bible, or there's Bible movies, Bible documentaries. Those are much more interesting, right? They get our emotions going. Why didn't God reveal himself that way? Well, it's interesting, right? Movies kind of function on ambiguity. They kind of flourish on nuance, right? That's because movies thrive on making the viewer, us, right, come to conclusions and understandings about what the movie's about. 
So for instance, when you're watching a movie, you just finished your movie, you get in the car and you're driving home with the person you went to the movie to and you always ask, did you see that that woman was wearing a red coat? And I think that pointed back to, you know, when she was a kid and there was a red coat on her bed when her mom was kidnapped. And I think there's a connection there, right? That's how movies work. They're, they're ambiguous and, and they try and pull you in to make conclusions yourself. Not so with words. Right, words are clear. Words make statements. Words make claims and propositions that they're supposed to be known, not ambiguous. And so God's speech is different. His word and Bible are different. And that's why David, the first thing he has to say about it is that the law of the Lord is perfect. Verse 7, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That idea of sure, right, is that it's stable. It can be trusted. But focus on perfect for a moment. When I think of perfection, I think of my wife, okay? My wife's perfect. And because she's perfect, I don't have to go looking in other places to have emotional or intimate satisfaction. My wife is perfect, meaning she's sufficient, She's enough. I don't need anything else. And the same thing with God's word. It is sufficient. It's enough. And this is important for how we live our lives. Because how many of us, and you can raise your hand for this one as well, how many of you have faced a a job transition or a relationship or something else that's big in your life and you've asked God, God, if you would just show me, like if you would just reveal yourself to me, anybody ever done this? God, if you would just show me, then I'll know what to do. But don't you see, God has shown us. He's given us a wisdom through his scripture that we might go from simplicity to wisdom, to start thinking in our lives the way God thinks about life. And now this isn't like, all right, you're dating Betsy, you should break up with Betsy. It's not going to give us that kind of wisdom. The wisdom it's going to give us is a wisdom that revives our souls. It's a spiritual wisdom that God uses in our life to apply to our daily lives. Now, there are other ways that many people seek God today, whether, you know, it's through meditation or through popular books or through experiences, all of which are not bad. The problem is, is they're not sufficient. You would always need it more. The Bible, though, claims perfection. It it claims stability. It is a sufficient guide to knowing God and to knowing ourselves. David continues, verse 8. He also says this about the law of the Lord. He said, the precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord, or sorry, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And that idea of enlightening means that God's word's not obscure, right? It it gives light. It shines light. It's not as if this is a mysterious book that only theologians can understand. No, any person who has a serious desire to know God in reading the Bible and hearing the Bible taught and hearing the Bible preached can know that God, okay? But here's what that does not mean. That doesn't mean that the Bible's easy. The Bible can be hard, And for that reason, God's given us teachers and pastors, right, to explain it, to teach it, to preach it. But what it does mean is that the main message of Scripture can be known, and the main message of Scripture is clear. It's a message about God. So when you read about God in the Bible, the conclusion you come to is that this is a holy God. 
that this God is also a just God, that this God is a powerful, gracious, loving, and kind and true God. It also tells us the main message about ourselves, right? Who here is jacked up? Who here, who here wants to be watching the Broncos game right now instead of worshiping God? None of you, right? Because you're here. But that's why, nobody, that's why everybody signed up for the 9 o'clock service. Here's the thing. We have something fundamentally distorted in us that we don't, we don't want this holy God. We don't want this just God. We don't want this loving God. We want a God of our own choosing. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And it's the foundation and the fountain of every single trouble that we have. I do a lot of marriage counseling as a pastor. And you know what every couple comes in and they says their greatest problem is? Communication. Is that your biggest problem, you married folks? And I always love saying this because it always throws them off. I say communication is a huge problem, but it's not your biggest problem. The biggest problem is you both are jacked up. You both are sinners. And you're actually in rebellion against God. And God, as a result, this is key. God, as a result, could justly condemn us and give us punishment for our sins, which would mean eternal separation from God forever in hell. You cannot not read the Bible and come to that conclusion. You cannot not read the Bible and come to any other sound conclusion that God justly could condemn us for our sins. Unless you stop at Genesis chapter 2. And here's the thing, though. Instead of punishing us, the Bible gives us this, this image, this picture, this hope that he has come and he has actually, in his son Jesus Christ, become our substitute. That's a key word, substitute. Right? What does a substitute teacher do? Substitute teacher comes into your classroom and teaches for the, the primary teacher, right? She, she or he stands in the place of the real teacher. She or he lets you go to the bathroom. She or he sends you to the principal office if you're like me. Okay? That's what a substitute does. They take the place of the original. Jesus Christ is our substitute. Before he's our example, before he's a great teacher, he's our substitute who stood in our place and bore the punishment and the wrath and the judgment of God that we deserve in our place on the cross. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't just dying a death at human hands. He was actually bearing the wrath of God and punishment of God for our sins. And equally clear in the Bible is how we're supposed to respond to this. And it's, it's very simple. We're supposed to place our faith in Jesus, to trust him with our lives, to trust him with our eternity. That's the message from Genesis to, to Revelation, and it's clear. And uh, David kind of closes this out in verse 9 of all these attributes of the word of God by saying, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. When something is true and righteous, it is authoritative. It has authority to speak over us, meaning the Bible stands over us and challenges us. We don't stand over it and challenge and question it. That doesn't mean we can't ask questions, but it does mean we're to submit to the Bible. 
When something's authoritative, right, it means it's unlike any other person or any other book. So for instance, everybody knows this, right? When you get a, imagine you get an invitation to go to your coworker's daughter's graduation party. Right, there's a lot of things that go on in your mind. You think, do I have enough time for this? Uh, do, do I really want to spend money to buy the gift? Uh, do I really like this person? Right? This, but this is a suggestion. They're sending you a suggestion to, hey, here's this party, and you can choose whether or not to come. Compare that, right, to a summons in court. Now, a summons in court, it doesn't matter what your schedule says. Right? It doesn't matter whether or not you had a prior engagement. It doesn't matter whether or not you like the judge. Nobody likes the judge. But you're still required to go, right? It, it actually summons you into the presence of someone. And that's what the Bible does, too, as an authority that's righteous and true, is it summons us and tells us to submit to it. The Bible is the ultimate authority. And now, verse 10, David says that, this word is to be desired. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So two things, right? Warned. All of us love spirituality. And all of us love how God reveals himself in creation, right? So for instance, all of us love the Grand Canyon. If you go and look at the Grand Canyon, you just are in awe at how vast it is. Or when you stand at a mountaintop and you see the trees and you see the birds, you realize, wow, look how great this God is. When you stand by the ocean and you see it just goes on forever and ever, your thought is, how could a God make something like that? But here's the thing. When we worship God spiritually through creation, we can kind of keep God at a distance, can't we? Because the Grand Canyon never tells you how you should live your life. The ocean never tells you to repent. Never does that. Right? The mountains never tell you this is what God is like and this is how you're supposed to believe. But by the scriptures, we are warned. We're told that this is a serious message that it's communicating. I've been working around my house on a lot of electrical stuff because we just moved to Littleton. And every time you open up something that's electrical, right, there's a big exclamation point in a triangle that says, warning, make sure you turn off the circuit breaker. And I've been clipping those out, by the way, the big exclamation point in the triangle. I've been putting them on my baby's diapers around the house. My wife's been finding them. She takes them, and then she puts them on the bathroom door after I'm done using the bathroom. It's a funny game we play. Maybe we're just weird that way. But the Bible warns us because God speaks clearly that we need a message outside of ourselves and outside of creation. And that's what he's getting at when he says, by them in our reading, there's great reward as well. Because the Grand Canyon will never die for you. But the God of the Bible will. See, the trees and the mountains will never tell you that they love you. But the God of the Bible will. The ocean will never tell you that these eternal life and happiness and joy and forgiveness of sins 
in the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. But the God of the Bible will. In them there is great reward. The only way to know God as Savior and substitute and gracious and loving is through this book that God has revealed to us. It's through this word that we hear of the reward of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And this only leads to one thing. It's something that we see in eternal life in the book of Revelation that's going to happen and should be happening now. But it's something that when we read about it, we can only but do it. It's verse 14. David finishes this psalm by saying, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In other words, worship. God wants us to worship him. To have our mouths transformed from mouths that once spoke against God or mouths that don't speak of God nearly enough to mouths that now praise him and are pleased and acceptable in God's sight. Tongues that give him praise and also that our hearts would be changed by the reading of this word because that's exactly what God does. God actually changes people's hearts through these scriptures because in them we hear of Jesus who can cleanse our heart from the defilement of sin. Once we were in rebellion to God and in sin and now we stand before God with hearts clean because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Who else can we run to as our rock and our refuge and our redeemer? None other. God wants to change our mouths and our hearts. And this always makes me think of this man. His name is Polycarp. He lived in the second century. He was actually really close friends with the Apostle John, who wrote portions of the Bible. And Polycarp was arrested in his hometown in Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he was taken and caravaned through the Roman Empire, ultimately to land in Rome, where he stood in the Colosseum. And he's standing there before a Roman official, and a Roman official is looking at him, and he says, deny Jesus is Lord. In other words, use your mouth to deny your Savior. And Polycarp's response was, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me any harm nor denied me. He's never denied me. How then could I use my mouth to speak against my king who saved me? See, it's only by knowing the God who created the universe but was willing to step down into our darkness, into our jacked-upness, our sin, and die the death that we deserve that we can actually worship God in that way. And that's what we get the chance to do in our closing song. But before we do that and respond in prayer, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made yourself known, that we can know you, that we can know you intimately and truly. Thank you that creation screams your glory, that you have made yourself knowable through it. And thank you that you proclaim it day and night. And God, we also thank you for your word, that through it we can know you sufficiently, that we don't have to go anywhere else that through it we can know you speak with authority and through it we know that you speak clearly to us. 
God, we pray that you would help us be people of your word who live by it, who pour over it, who study it. And we pray most of all that it would lead us to worship of you and your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us as our substitute, our savior from sin. God, we pray this all in his name, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen.